can the steely mind of Ms. Loveday Brook discover the murderer at Troit's Hill? Catherine Louisa Perkins, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. With the pandemic still nipping at our heels and grasping at our throats, we need your help more than ever. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping us to keep going strong. I hope you enjoy and take advantage of the monthly coupon codes. App users can hear the poem Song by Edmund Waller in the special features area of their app. September sleuths continue with our introduction of Ms. Loveday Brook, the creation of Catherine Louisa Perkins. Ms. Perkins' first major novel, Disappeared from Her Home, represented her foray into the mystery genre and is celebrated largely as the first incidence of a female detective heroine written by a female author in the casebook format of detective fiction. She wrote a total of 14 novels and is most celebrated for her creation of Loveday Brooke, who is the heroine of today's story. Now for our personal moment. On Sunday, we took a drive up the canyon. We only live 20 minutes away from Sundance, so about this time we like to take a drive on Sunday and check out the leaves as they start to change. There's a frequented alpine loop that takes you right up over the mountain, but we can't take all of the zigzagging. And we usually listen to Disneyland music when we drive around and talk about the good times we've had when we were at the park. One time, years ago, Basil's flip-flop got caught in one of the big escalators in the parking lot, and it broke the escalator. Like the piece of metal stair broke off, and the escalator stopped. Of course, we were at the top, so we just stepped off but there was the biggest collective sigh you've ever heard behind us. We tried to just surreptitiously make it to our car while everybody figured out why the elevator had stopped. Anyway, between driving up the canyon and having peach chicken, it was a pretty wonderful Sunday. And that's our personal moment. Thank you very much. And now, The Murder at Troit's Hill by Catherine Louisa Perkins. Griffiths, of the Newcastle Constabulary, has the case in hand, said Mr. Dyer. Those Newcastle men are keen-witted, shrewd fellows, and very jealous of outside interference. They only sent to me under protest, as it were, because they wanted your sharp wits at work inside the house. I suppose throughout I am to work with Griffiths, not with you? said Miss Brooke. Yes, when I have given you an outline the facts of the case, I simply have nothing more to do with it, and you must depend on Griffiths for any assistance of any sort that you may require. Here, with a swing, Mr. Dyer opened his big ledger and turned rapidly over its leaves till he came to the heading Troit's Hill, and the date September 6th. "'I am all attention,' said Loveday leaning back in her chair in the attitude of a listener. "'The murdered man,' resumed Mr. Dyer, "'is a certain Alexander Henderson, "'usually known as Old Sandy, "'lodgekeeper to Mr. Craven of Troit's Hill, Cumberland. "'The lodge consists merely of two rooms on the ground floor, "'a bedroom and a sitting-room. "'These Sandy occupied alone, "'having neither kith nor kin of any degree.' On the morning of September 6th, some children going up to the house with milk from the farm noticed that Sandy's bedroom window stood wide open. Curiosity prompted them to peep in, and then to their horror they saw old Sandy, in his nightshirt, lying dead on the floor, as if he had fallen backward from the window. They raised an alarm, and on examination it was found that death had ensued from a heavy blow on the temple— given either by a strong fist or some blunt instrument. 
The room on being entered presented a curious appearance. It was as if a herd of monkeys had been turned into it and allowed to work their impish will. Not an article of furniture remained in its place. The bedclothes had been rolled into a bundle and stuffed into the chimney. The bedstead, a small iron one, lay on its side. The one chair in the room stood on the top of the table. Fender and fire irons lay across the washstand, whose basin was to be found in a farther corner, holding bolster and pillow. The clock stood on its head in the middle of the mantelpiece, and the small vases and ornaments, which flanked it on either side, were walking, as it were, in a straight line towards the door. The old man's clothes had been rolled into a ball and thrown on the top of a high cupboard in which he kept his savings and whatever valuables he had. This cupboard, however, had not been meddled with, and its contents remained intact. So it was evident that robbery was not the motive for the crime. At the inquest, subsequently held, a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown was returned. The local police are diligently investigating the affair, but as yet no arrests have been made. The opinion that at present prevails in the neighbourhood is that the crime has been perpetrated by some lunatic, escaped or otherwise, and enquiries are being made at the local asylums as to missing or lately released inmates. Griffiths, however, tells me that his suspicions set in another direction. Did anything of importance transpire at the inquest? Nothing specially important. Mr. Craven broke down in giving his evidence when he alluded to the confidential relations that had always subsisted between Sandy and himself, and spoke of the last time that he had seen him alive. The evidence of the butler and one or two of the female servants seems clear enough, and they let fall something of a hint that Sandy was not altogether a favourite among them, on account of the overbearing manner in which he used his influence with his master. Young Mr. Craven, a youth of about nineteen, home from Oxford for the long vacation, was not present at the inquest. A doctor's certificate was put in, stating that he was suffering from typhoid fever, and could not leave his bed without risk to his life. Now, this young man is a thoroughly bad sort, and as much a gentleman blackleg as it is possible for such a young fellow to be. It seems to Griffiths that there is something suspicious about this illness of his. He came back from Oxford on the verge of delirium tremens, pulled round from that, and then suddenly, on the day after the murder, Mrs. Craven rings the bell, announces that he has developed typhoid fever, and orders a doctor to be sent for. What sort of man is Mr. Craven Senior? He seems to be a quiet old fellow, a scholar and learned philologist. Neither his neighbours nor his family see much of him. He almost lives in his study, writing a treatise, in seven or eight volumes on comparative philology. He is not a rich man. Troit's Hill, though it carries position in the county, is not a paying property and Mr. Craven is unable to keep it up properly. I am told he has had to cut down expenses in all directions in order to send his son to college, and his daughter from first to last has been entirely educated by her mother. Mr. Craven was originally intended for the church, but for some reason or other, when his college career came to an end, he did not present himself for ordination, went out to Natal instead, where he obtained some civil appointment and where he remained for about fifteen years. Henderson was his servant during the latter portion of his Oxford career, and must have been greatly respected by him, for although the remuneration derived from his appointment at Natal was small, he paid Sandy a regular yearly allowance out of it. When, about ten years ago, he succeeded to Troit's Hill on the death of his elder brother, and returned home with his family, Sandy was immediately installed as lodgekeeper, and at so high a rate of pay that the butler's wages were cut down to meet it. Ah, that wouldn't improve the butler's feelings towards him, ejaculated Loveday. Mr. Dyer went on. But in spite of his high wages, 
he doesn't appear to have troubled much about his duties as lodgekeeper, for they were performed, as a rule, by the gardener's boy, while he took his meals and passed his time at the house, and speaking generally, put his finger into every pie. You know the old adage respecting the servant of twenty-one years standing? Seven years my servant, seven years my equal, seven years my master. Well, it appears to have held good in the case of Mr. Craven and Sandy. The old gentleman, absorbed in his philological studies, evidently let the reins slip through his fingers, and Sandy seems to have taken easy possession of them. The servants frequently had to go to him for orders, and he carried things, as a rule, with a high hand. Did Mrs. Craven never have a word to say on the matter? I have not heard much about her. She seems to be a quiet sort of person. She is a Scotch missionary's daughter. Perhaps she spends her time working for the Cape Mission, and that sort of thing. And young Mr. Craven, did he knock under to Sandy's rule? Ah, now you're hitting the bull's-eye, and we come to Griffith's theory. The young man and Sandy appear to have been at loggerheads ever since the Cravens took possession of Troit's Hill. As a schoolboy, Master Harry defied Sandy and threatened him with his hunting crop, and subsequently, as a young man, has used strenuous endeavours to put the old servant in his place. On the day before the murder, Griffiths says, there was a terrible scene between the two, in which the young gentleman, in the presence of several witnesses, made use of strong language and threatened the old man's life. Now, Miss Brooke, I have told you all the circumstances of the case so far as I know them. For fuller particulars, I must refer you to Griffiths. He, no doubt, will meet you at Grenfell, the nearest station to Troit's Hill, and tell you in what capacity he has procured for you an entrance into the house. By the way, he has wired to me this morning that he hopes you will be able to save the Scotch Express tonight. Loveday expressed her readiness to comply with Mr. Griffith's wishes. "'I shall be glad,' said Mr. Dyer, as he shook hands with her at the office door, "'to see you immediately on your return. That, however, I suppose, will not be yet a while. This promises, I fancy, to be a longish affair.' This was said interrogatively. "'I haven't the least idea on the matter,' answered Loveday. I start my work without theory of any sort. In fact, I may say, with my mind a perfect blank. And anyone who had caught a glimpse of her blank, expressionless features, as she said this, would have taken her at her word. Grenfell, the nearest post-town to Troit's Hill, is a fairly busy, populous little town, looking south towards the black country, and northwards, to low, barren hills. Preeminent among these stands Troit's Hill, famed in the old days as a border-keep, and possibly at a still earlier date as a druid stronghold. At a small inn at Grenfell, dignified by the title of the Station Hotel, Mr. Griffiths of the Newcastle Constabulary met Loveday and still further initiated her into the mysteries of the Troits Hill murder. "'A little of the first excitement has subsided,' he said after preliminary greetings had been exchanged. "'But still the wildest rumours are flying about, and repeated as solemnly as if they were gospel truths. My chief here and my colleagues generally adhere to their first conviction.' that the criminal is some suddenly crazed tramp, or else an escaped lunatic, and they are confident that sooner or later we shall come upon his traces. Their theory is that Sandy, hearing some strange noise at the park gates, put his head out of the window to ascertain the cause, and immediately had his death-blow dealt him. Then they suppose that the lunatic scrambled into the room through the window and exhausted his frenzy by turning things generally upside down. They refuse altogether to share my suspicions respecting young Mr. Craven. Mr. Griffiths was a tall, thin-featured man, with iron-grey hair, but so close to his head that it refused to do anything but stand on end. 
This gave a somewhat comic expression to the upper portion of his face, and clashed oddly with the melancholy look that his mouth habitually wore. "'I have made all smooth for you at Troit's Hill,' he presently went on. "'Mr. Craven is not wealthy enough to allow himself the luxury of a family lawyer, so he occasionally employs the services of Messrs. Well and Sojourn, lawyers in this place, and who, as it happens, have, off and on, done a good deal of business for me.' It was through them that I heard that Mr. Craven was anxious to secure the assistance of an amanuensis. I immediately offered your services, stating that you were a friend of mine, a lady of impoverished means, who would gladly undertake the duties for the munificent sum of a guinea a month, with board and lodging. The old gentleman at once jumped at the offer, and is anxious for you to be at Troit's Hill at once.' Loveday expressed her satisfaction with the program that Mr. Griffiths had sketched for her. Then she had a few questions to ask. "'Tell me,' she said, "'what led you, in the first instance, to suspect young Mr. Craven of the crime?' "'The footing on which he and Sandy stood towards each other, and the terrible scene that occurred between them only the day before the murder,' answered Griffiths promptly. Nothing of this, however, was elicited at the inquest, where a very fair face was put on Sandy's relations with the whole of the Craven family. I have subsequently unearthed a good deal respecting the private life of Mr. Harry Craven, and, among other things, I have found out that on the night of the murder he left the house shortly after ten o'clock, and no one, so far as I have been able to ascertain, knows at what hour he returned.' Now, I must draw your attention, Miss Brooke, to the fact that at the inquest the medical evidence went to prove that the murder had been committed between ten and eleven at night. Do you surmise, then, that the murder was a planned thing on the part of this young man? I do. I believe that he wandered about the grounds until Sandy shot himself in for the night, then aroused him by some outside noise— and when the old man looked out to ascertain the cause, dealt him a blow with a bludgeon or loaded stick that caused his death. A cold-blooded crime, that, for a boy of nineteen. Yes, he's a good-looking gentlemanly youngster, too, with manners as mild as milk, but from all accounts is as full of wickedness as an egg is full of meat. Now, as comes to another point, if, in connection with these ugly facts, you take into consideration the suddenness of his illness, I think you'll admit that it bears a suspicious appearance and might reasonably give rise to the surmise that it was a plant on his part in order to get out of the inquest. Who is the doctor attending him? A man called Waters, not much of a practitioner from all accounts, and no doubt he feels himself highly honoured in being summoned to Troit's Hill. The Cravens, it seems, have no family doctor. Mrs. Craven, with her missionary experience, is half a doctor herself, and never calls in one except in a serious emergency. The certificate was in order, I suppose. Undoubtedly. And as if to give colour to the gravity of the case, Mrs. Craven sent a message down to the servants that if any of them were afraid of the infection, they could at once go to their homes. Several of the maids, I believe, took advantage of her permission, and packed their boxes. Miss Craven, who was a delicate girl, was sent away with her maid to stay with friends at Newcastle, and Mrs. Craven isolated herself with her patient in one of the disused wings of the house. Has anyone ascertained whether Miss Craven arrived at her destination at Newcastle? Griffiths drew his brows together and thought. "'I did not see any necessity for such a thing,' he answered. "'I don't quite follow you. What do you mean to imply?' "'Oh, nothing. I don't suppose it matters much. It might have been interesting as a side issue.' She broke off for a moment, then added, "'Now tell me a little about the butler, the man whose wages were cut down to increase Sandy's pay. "'Old John Hales!' He's a thoroughly worthy, respectable man. He was butler for five or six years to Mr. Craven's brother, 
when he was master of Troyts Hill, and then took duty under this Mr. Craven. There's no ground for suspicion in that quarter. Hale's exclamation when he heard of the murder is quite enough to stamp him as an innocent man. Serve the old idiot right, he cried. I couldn't pump up a tear for him if I tried for a month of Sundays. Now I ask it, Miss Brooke. A guilty man wouldn't dare make such a speech as that. You think not? Griffiths stared at her. I'm a little disappointed in her, he thought. I'm afraid her powers have been slightly exaggerated, if she can't see such a straightforward thing as that. Aloud, he said, a little sharply, "'Well, I don't stand alone in my thinking. "'No one yet has breathed a word against Hales, "'and if they did, I've no doubt he could prove an alibi without any trouble, "'for he lives in the house, and everybody has a good word for him.' "'I suppose Sandy's lodge has been put into order by this time?' "'Yes. After the inquest, when all possible evidence had been taken, "'everything was put straight. "'At the inquest it was stated that no marks of footsteps could be traced in any direction. The long drought we've had would render such a thing impossible, let alone the fact that Sandy's Lodge stands right on the gravel drive, without flower beds or grass borders or any sort around it. But look here, Miss Brooke, don't you be wasting your time over the Lodge and its surroundings. Every iota of fact on the matter has been gone through over and over again by me and my chief. What we want you to do is to go straight into the house and concentrate attention on Master Harry's sick room and find out what's going on there. What he did outside the house on the night of the 6th, I've no doubt I shall be able to find out for myself. Now, Miss Brooke, you've asked me no end of questions— to which I have replied as fully as it was in my power to do. Will you be good enough to answer one question that I wish to put, as straightforwardly as I have answered yours? You have had fullest particulars given you of the condition of Sandy's room when the police entered it on the morning after the murder. No doubt, at the present moment, you can see it all in your mind's eye, the bedstead on its side, the clock on its head, the bedclothes halfway up the chimney, the little vases and ornaments walking in a straight line towards the door. Loveday bowed her head. Very well. Now, will you be good enough to tell me what this scene of confusion recalls to your mind before anything else? The room of an unpopular Oxford freshman after a raid upon it by undergrads, answered Loveday promptly. Mr. Griffiths rubbed his hands. Quite so, he ejaculated. I see, after all, we are one at heart in this matter, in spite of a little surface disagreement of ideas. Depend upon it by and by. Like the engineers tunnelling from different quarters under the Alps, we shall meet at the same point and shake hands. By the way, I have arranged for daily communication between us through the postboy who takes the letters to Troyts Hill. He is trustworthy, and any letter you give him for me will find its way into my hands within the hour. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon when Loveday drove in through the park gates of Troit's Hill, past the lodge where old Sandy had met with his death. It was a pretty little cottage, covered with Virginia creeper and wild honeysuckle, and showing no outward sign of the tragedy that had been enacted within. The park and pleasure grounds of Troyts Hill were extensive, and the house itself was a somewhat imposing red-brick structure, built, possibly, at the time when Dutch William's taste had grown popular in the country. Its frontage presented a somewhat forlorn appearance, its center windows, a square of eight, alone, seeming to show signs of occupation. With the exception of two windows at the extreme end of the bedroom floor of the north wing, where, possibly, the invalid and his mother were located, and two windows at the extreme end of the ground floor of the south wing, which Loveday ascertained subsequently were those of Mr. Craven's study, not a single window in either wing owned blind or curtain. The wings were extensive, and it was easy to understand that at the extreme end of the one, 
the fever patient would be isolated from the rest of the household, and that at the extreme end of the other, Mr. Craven could secure the quiet and freedom from interruption, which, no doubt, were essential to the due prosecution of his philological studies. Alike on the house and ill-kept grounds were present the stamp of the smallness of the income of the master and owner of the place. The terrace, which ran the length of the house in front, and onto which every window on the ground floor opened, was miserably out of repair. Not a lintel or doorpost, window ledge or balcony, but which seemed to cry aloud for the touch of the painter. Pity me, I have seen better days. Loveday could fancy written as a legend across the red brick porch that gave entrance to the old house. The butler, John Hales, admitted Loveday, shouldered her portmanteau, and told her he would show her to her room. He was a tall, powerfully built man, with a ruddy face and dogged expression of countenance. It was easy to understand that, off and on, there must have been many a sharp encounter between him and old Sandy. He treated Loveday in an easy, familiar fashion, evidently considering that an amanuensis took much the same rank as a nursery governess, that is to say, a little below a lady's maid and a little above a housemaid. "'We're short of hands just now,' he said in broad Cumberland dialect as he led the way up to the wide staircase. "'Some of the lasses downstairs took fright of the fever and went home. Cook and I are single-handed, for Moggy... The only maid, left, has been told off to wait on Madam and Master Harry. I hope you are not feared a fever. Loveday explained that she was not, and asked if the room at the extreme end of the north wing was the one assigned to Madam and Master Harry. Yes, said the man. It's convenient for sick nursing. There's a flight of stairs run straight down from it to the kitchen quarters. We put old Madam once at the foot of those stairs, and Moggy herself never enters the sick-room. I take it you'll not be seeing, madam, for many a day, yet a while. When shall I see Mr. Craven? At dinner tonight? That's what nobody could say, answered Hales. He may not come out of his study till past midnight. Sometimes he sits there till two or three in the morning. Shouldn't advise you to wait till he wants his dinner. Better have a cup of tea and a chop sent up to you. Madam never waits for him at any meal. As he finished speaking, he deposited the portmanteau outside one of the many doors opening into the gallery. "'This is Miss Craven's room,' he went on. "'Cook and me thought you'd better have it, as it won't less getting ready than the other rooms, and work is work when there are so few hands to do it. Oh, my stars! I do declare there is Cook putting it straight for you now!' The last sentence was added as the opened door laid bare to view the cook— with a duster in her hand, polishing a mirror. The bed had been made, it is true, but otherwise the room must have been much as Miss Craven left it, after a hurried packing up. To the surprise of the two servants, Loveday took the matter very lightly. I have a special talent for arranging rooms, and would prefer getting this one straight for myself, she said. Now, if you will go and get ready that chop and cup of tea we were talking about just now, I shall think it much kinder, than if you stayed here doing what I can so easily do for myself. When, however, the cook and butler had departed in company, Loveday showed no disposition to exercise the special talent of which she had boasted. She first carefully turned the key in the lock, and then proceeded to make a thorough and minute investigation of every corner of the room. Not an article of furniture, not an ornament or toilet accessory, but what was lifted from its place and carefully scrutinized. Even the ashes in the grate, the debris of the last fire made there, were raked over and well looked through. This careful investigation of Miss Craven's late surroundings occupied in all about three quarters of an hour, and Loveday, with her hat in her hand, descended the stairs to see Hales crossing the hall to the dining room with the promised cup of tea and chop. In silence and solitude, she partook of the simple repast in a dining hall that could with ease have banqueted a hundred and fifty guests. Now for the grounds before it gets dark, she said to herself, 
as she noted that already the outside shadows were beginning to slant. The dining hall was at the back of the house, and here, as in the front, the windows, reaching to the ground, presented easy means of egress. The flower garden was on this side of the house and sloped downhill to a pretty stretch of well-wooded country. Loveday did not linger here even to admire, but passed at once round the south corner of the house to the windows, which she had ascertained, by a careless question to the butler, were those of Mr. Craven's study. Very cautiously she drew near them, for the blinds were up, the curtains drawn back. A side glance, however, relieved her apprehensions, for it showed her the occupant of the room, seated in an easy chair, with his back to the windows. From the length of his outstretched limbs, he was evidently a tall man. His hair was silvery and curly. The lower part of his face was hidden from her view by the chair, but she could see one hand was pressed tightly across his eyes and brows. The whole attitude was that of a man absorbed in deep thought. The room was comfortably furnished, but presented an appearance of disorder from the books and manuscripts scattered in all directions. A whole pile of torn fragments of foolscap sheets, overflowing from a waste-paper basket beside the writing-table, seemed to proclaim the fact that the scholar had of late grown weary of, or else dissatisfied, with his work, and had condemned it freely. Although Loveday stood looking in at this window for over five minutes, not the faintest sign of life did that tall, reclining figure give, and it would have been as easy to believe him locked in sleep as in thought. From here, she turned her steps in the direction of Sandy's Lodge. As Griffiths had said, it was graveled up to its doorstep. The blinds were closely drawn, and it presented the ordinary appearance of a disused cottage. A narrow path beneath overarching boughs of cherry laurel and arbutus, immediately facing the lodge, caught her eye, and down this she at once turned her footsteps. This path led, with many a wind and turn, through a belt of shrubbery that skirted the frontage of Mr. Craven's grounds, and eventually, after much zigzagging, ended in close proximity to the stables. As Loveday entered it, she seemed literally to leave daylight behind her. I feel as if I were following the course of a circuitous mind, she said to herself as the shadows closed around her. I could not fancy Sir Isaac Newton or Bacon planning or delighting in such a windabout alley as this. The path showed greyly in front of her, out of the dimness. On and on she followed it. Here and there the roots of the old laurels, struggling out of the ground, threatened to trip her up. Her eyes, however, had now grown accustomed to the half-gloom, and not a detail of her surroundings escaped her as she went along. A bird flew from out the thicket on her right hand with a startled cry. A dainty little frog leaped out of her way into the shriveled leaves lying below the laurels. Following the movements of this frog, her eye was caught by something black and solid among those leaves. What was it? A bundle. A shiny black coat? Loveday knelt down, and using her hands to assist her eyes, found that they came into contact with the dead, stiffened body of a beautiful black retriever. She parted, as well as she was able, the lower boughs of the evergreens, and minutely examined the poor animal. Its eyes were still open, though glazed and bleared, and its death had undoubtedly been caused by the blow of some blunt, heavy instrument, for on one side its skull was almost battered in. Exactly the death that was dealt to Sandy, she thought, as she groped hither and thither beneath the trees in hopes of lighting upon the weapon of destruction. She searched until increasing darkness warned her that search was useless. Then, still following the zigzagging path, she made her way out by the stables and thence back to the house. She went to bed that night without having spoken to a soul beyond the cook and butler. The next morning, however, Mr. Craven introduced himself to her across the breakfast table. 
He was a man of really handsome personal appearance, with a fine carriage of the head and shoulders, and eyes that had a forlorn, appealing look in them. He entered the room with an air of great energy, apologized to Loveday for the absence of his wife, and for his own remissness in not being in the way to receive her on the previous day. Then he bade her make herself at home at the breakfast table, and expressed his delight in having found a co-adjutor in his work. I hope you understand what a great, a stupendous work it is, he added as he sank into a chair. It is a work that will leave its impress upon thought in all the ages to come. Only a man who has studied comparative philology as I have for the past thirty years could gauge the magnitude of the task I have set myself. With the last remark, his energy seemed spent, and he sank back in his chair, covering his eyes with his hand in precisely the same attitude as that in which Loveday had seen him overnight, and utterly oblivious to the fact that breakfast was before him and a stranger guest seated at table. The butler entered with another dish. "'Better go on with your breakfast,' he whispered to Loveday. "'You may sit like that for another hour.' He placed his dish in front of his master. "'Captain hasn't come back yet, sir,' he said, making an effort to arouse him from his reverie. "'Eh, what?' said Mr. Craven, for a moment lifting his hand from his eyes. "'Captain, sir, the black retriever,' repeated the man. The pathetic look in Mr. Craven's eyes deepened. "'Ah, poor captain,' he murmured. "'The best dog I ever had.' Then he again sank back in his chair, putting his hand to his forehead. The butler made one more effort to arouse him. Madam sent you down a newspaper, sir, that she thought you would like to see. He shouted almost into his master's ear, and at the same time laid the morning's paper on the table beside his plate. Confound you! Leave it there, said Mr. Craven irritably. Fools! Dolts that you all are! With your trivialities and interruptions, you are sending me out of the world with my work undone. And again he sank back in his chair, closed his eyes, and became lost to his surroundings. Loveday went on with her breakfast. She changed her place at table to one on Mr. Craven's right hand, so that the newspaper sent down for his perusal lay between his plate and hers. It was folded into an oblong shape, as if it were wished to direct attention to a certain portion of a certain column. A clock in a corner of the room struck the hour with a loud, resonant stroke. Mr. Craven gave a start and rubbed his eyes. "'Eh? What's this?' he said. "'What meal are we at?' He looked around with a bewildered air. "'Eh? Who are you?' he went on, staring hard at Loveday. "'What are you doing here? Where's Nina?' "'Where's Harry?' Loveday began to explain, and gradually recollection seemed to come back to him. "'Ah, yes. Yes,' he said. "'I remember. You've come to assist me with my great work. You promised, you know, to help me out of the hole I've got into. Very enthusiastic, I remember they said you were, on certain abstruse points in comparative philology. Now, Miss... Miss... I've forgotten your name. Tell me a little of what you know about the elemental sounds of speech that are common to all languages. Now, to how many would you reduce those elemental sounds? To six, eight, nine? No, we won't discuss the matter here. The cups and saucers distract me. Come into my den at the other end of the house. We'll have perfect quiet there. And utterly ignoring the fact that he had not as yet broken his fast, he rose from the table, seized Loveday by the wrist, and led her out of the room and down the long corridor that led through the south wing to his study. But seated in that study, his energy once more speedily exhausted itself. He placed Loveday in a comfortable chair at his writing table, consulted her taste as to pens, and spread a sheet of fool's cap before her. Then he settled himself in his easy chair, with his back to the light, as if he were about to dictate folios to her. In a loud, distinct voice, he repeated the title of his learned work, then its subdivision, 
then the number and heading of the chapter that was at present engaging his attention. Then he put his hand to his head. It's the elemental sounds that are my stumbling block, he said. Now how on earth is it possible to get a notion of a sound of agony that is not in part a sound of terror, or a sound of surprise that is not in part a sound of either joy or sorrow? With this his energies were spent, and although Loveday remained seated in that study from early morning till daylight began to fade, she had not ten sentences to show for her day's work as a manuensis. Loveday and all spent only two clear days at Troit's Hill. On the evening of the first of those days, Detective Griffiths received, through the trustworthy postboy, the following brief note from her. I have found out that Hales owed Sandy close upon a hundred pounds, which he had borrowed at various times. I don't know whether you will think this fact of any importance. L.B. Mr. Griffiths repeated the last sentence blankly. If Harry Craven were put upon his defence, his counsel, I take it, would consider the fact of first importance, he muttered. And for the remainder of that day, Mr. Griffiths went about his work in a perturbed state of mind, doubtful whether to hold or to let go his theory concerning Harry Craven's guilt. The next morning there came another brief note from Loveday, which ran thus. As a matter of collateral interest, find out if a person, calling himself Harold Cousins, sailed two days ago from London docks for Natal in the Bonnie Dundee. To this missive, Loveday received, in reply, the following somewhat lengthy dispatch. I do not quite see the drift of your last note, but have wired to our agents in London to carry out its suggestion. On my part, I have important news to communicate. I have found out what Harry Craven's business out of doors was on the night of the murder, and at my instance a warrant has been issued for his arrest. This warrant it will be my duty to serve on him in the course of today. Things are beginning to look very black against him, and I am convinced his illness is all a sham. I have seen Waters, the man who is supposed to be attending him, and have driven him into a corner and made him admit that he has only seen young Craven once, on the first day of his illness, and that he gave his certificate entirely on the strength of what Mrs. Craven told him of her son's condition. On the occasion of this, his first and only visit, the lady, it seems, also told him that it would not be necessary for him to continue his attendance, as she quite felt herself competent to treat the case, having had so much experience in fever cases among the blacks at Natal. As I left Waters' house, after eliciting this important information, I was accosted by a man who keeps a low-class inn in the place, McQueen by name. He said that he wished to speak to me on a matter of importance. To make a long story short, this McQueen stated that on the night of the 6th, shortly after 11 o'clock, Harry Craven came to his house, bringing with him a valuable piece of plate, a handsome epern, and requested him to lend him a hundred pounds on it, as he hadn't a penny in his pocket. McQueen complied with his request to the extent of ten sovereigns, and now, in a fit of nervous terror, comes to me to confess himself a receiver of stolen goods and play the honest man. He says he noticed that the young gentleman was very much agitated as he made the request, and he also begged him to mention his visit to no one. Now I am curious to learn how Master Harry will get over the fact that he passed the lodge at the hour at which the murder was most probably committed, or how he will get out of the dilemma of having repassed the lodge on his way back to the house, and not notice the wide-open window with the full moon shining down on it. Another word. Keep out of the way when I arrive at the house, somewhere between two and three in the afternoon to serve the warrant. I do not wish your professional capacity to get wind, for you will most likely yet be of some use to us in the house. S.J. Loveday read this note, seated at Mr. Craven's writing-table, with the old gentleman himself 
reclining motionless beside her in his easy chair. A little smile played about the corners of her mouth as she read over again the words, For you will most likely yet be of some use to us in the house. Loveday's second day in Mr. Craven's study promised to be as unfruitful as the first. For fully an hour after she had received Griffith's note, she sat at the writing table with her pen in her hand, ready to transcribe Mr. Craven's inspirations. Beyond, however, the phrase muttered with closed eyes, It's all here, in my brain, but I can't put it into words. Not a half-syllable escaped his lips. At the end of that hour, the sound of footsteps on the outside gravel made her turn her head towards the window. It was Griffith's, approaching with two constables. She heard the hall door opened to admit them, but beyond that, not a sound reached her ear, and she realized how fully she was cut off from communication with the rest of the household at the farther end of this unoccupied wing. Mr. Craven, still reclining in his semi-trance, evidently had not the faintest suspicion that so important an event as the arrest of his only son on a charge of murder was about to be enacted in the house. Meantime, Griffiths and his constables had mounted the stairs leading to the north wing and were being guided through the corridors to the sick room by the flying figure of Moggy, the maid. "'Hoot, mistress!' cried the girl. "'Here are three men coming up the stairs. Policemen, every one of them. Will you come and ask them what they be wanting?' Outside the door of the sick room stood Mrs. Craven, a tall, sharp-featured woman with sandy hair, going rapidly grey. "'What is the meaning of this? What is your business here?' she said haughtily, addressing Griffiths, who headed the party. Griffiths respectfully explained what his business was, and requested her to stand on one side that he might enter her son's room. "'That is my daughter's room. Satisfy yourself of the fact,' said the lady, throwing back the door as she spoke. And Griffiths and his confreres entered, to find pretty Miss Craven, looking very white and scared, seated beside a fire in a long flowing robe de chambre. Griffiths departed in haste and confusion, without the chance of a professional talk with Loveday. That afternoon saw him telegraphing wildly in all directions, and dispatching messengers in all quarters. Finally he spent over an hour drawing up an elaborate report to his chief at Newcastle, assuring him of the identity of one Harold Cousins, who had sailed in the Bonnie Dundee for Natal, with Harry Craven of Troitz Hill, and advising that the police authorities in that faraway district should be immediately communicated with. The ink had not dried on the pen with which this report was written before a note in Loveday's writing was put into his hand. Loveday evidently had had some difficulty in finding a messenger for this note, for it was brought by a gardener's boy who informed Griffiths that the lady had said he would receive a gold sovereign if he delivered the letter all right. Griffiths paid the boy and dismissed him, and then proceeded to read Loveday's communication. It was written hurriedly in pencil and ran as follows. Things are getting critical here. Directly you receive this, come up to the house with two of your men and post yourselves anywhere in the grounds where you can see and not be seen. There will be no difficulty in this, for it will be dark by the time you are able to get there. I am not sure whether I shall want your aid tonight, but you had better keep in the grounds until morning in case of need, and above all, never once lose sight of the study windows. This was underscored. If I put a lamp with a green shade in one of those windows, do not lose a moment in entering by that window, which I will contrive to keep unlocked. Detective Griffiths rubbed his forehead, rubbed his eyes, as he finished reading this. "'Well, I dare say it's all right,' he said. "'But I'm bothered, that's all. "'And for the life of me I can't see one step of the way she is going.' He looked at his watch. The hands pointed to a quarter past six. The short September day was drawing rapidly to a close. A good five miles lay between him and Troit's Hill. There was evidently not a moment to lose.' At the very moment that Griffiths, 
with his two constables, were once more starting along the Grenfell High Road, behind the best horse they could procure, Mr. Craven was rousing himself from his long slumber, and beginning to look around him. That slumber, however, though long, had not been a peaceful one, and it was sundry of the old gentleman's muttered exclamations, as he had startled uneasily in his sleep, that had caused Loveday to open, and then to creep out of the room to dispatch her hurried note. What effect the occurrence of the morning had had upon the household generally, Loveday, in her isolated corner of the house, had no means of ascertaining. She only noted that when Hales brought in her tea, as he did precisely at five o'clock, he wore a particularly ill-tempered expression of countenance, and she heard him mutter, as he set down the tea-tray with a clatter, something about being a respectable man and not used to such goings-on. It was not until nearly an hour and a half after this that Mr. Craven had awakened with a sudden start, and looking wildly around him, had questioned Loveday who had entered the room. Loveday explained that the butler had brought in lunch at one and tea at five, but that since then no one had come in. "'Now that's false!' said Mr. Craven, in a sharp, unnatural sort of voice. "'I saw him sneaking round the room, the whining, canting hypocrite, and you must have seen him too. Didn't you hear him say in his squeaky old voice, "'Master, I knows your secret?' He broke off abruptly, looking wildly around. "'Eh? What's this?' he cried. "'No. No, I'm all wrong. Sandy is dead and buried. They held an inquest on him.' and we all praised him up as if he were a saint. He must have been a bad man, that old Sandy, said Loveday sympathetically. You're right! You're right! cried Mr. Craven, springing up excitedly from his chair and seizing her by the hand. If ever a man deserved his death, he did. For thirty years he held that rod over my head, and then, ha! Huh, where was I? He put his hand to his head and again sank, as if exhausted, into his chair. "'I suppose it was some early indiscretion of yours at college that he knew of,' said Loveday, eager to get at as much of the truth as possible while the mood for confidence held sway in that feeble brain. "'That was it! I was fool enough to marry a disreputable girl, the barmaid in the town, and Sandy was present at the wedding. And then—' Here his eyes closed again, and his mutterings became incoherent. For ten minutes— he lay back in his chair, muttering thus, A yelp, a groan, were the only words Loveday could distinguish among those mutterings. Then suddenly, slowly and distinctly, he said, as if answering some plainly put question, A good blow with the hammer, and the thing was done. I should like amazingly to see that hammer, said Loveday. Do you keep it anywhere at hand? His eyes opened with a wild, cunning look in them. "'Who's talking about a hammer? I did not say I had one. If anyone says I did it with a hammer, they're telling a lie.' "'Oh, you've spoken to me about the hammer two or three times,' said Loveday calmly. "'The one that killed your dog, Captain, and I should like to see it, that's all.' The look of cunning died out of the old man's eye. "'Ah, poor Captain. Splendid dog, that.' "'Well, now, where were we? Where did we leave off? I remember. "'It was the elemental sounds of speech that bothered me so that night. "'Were you here then? Ah, oh, no, I remember. "'I had been trying all day to assimilate a dog's yelp of pain to a human groan, "'and I couldn't do it. "'The idea haunted me, followed me about wherever I went. "'If they were both elemental sounds, they must have something in common.' but the link between them I could not find. Then it occurred to me, would a well-bred, well-trained dog like my captain in the stables, there, at the moment of death, give an unmitigated currish yelp? Would there not be something of a human note in his death-cry? The thing was worth putting to the test. If I could hand down in my treatise a fragment of fact on the matter, it would be worth a dozen dogs' lives.' So I went out in the moonlight, 
Ah, but you know all about it now, don't you? Yes, poor captain. Did he yelp or groan? Why, he gave one long, loud, hideous yelp, just as if he had been a common cur. I might just as well have let him alone. It only set that other brute opening his window and spying out on me, and saying in his cracked old voice, Master, what are you doing out here at this time of night? Again he sank back in his chair, muttering incoherently with half-closed eyes. Loveday let him alone for a minute or two. Then she had another question to ask. And the other brute, did he yelp or groan when you dealt him his blow? What, old Sandy? The brute? He fell back. <laughs> I remember. You said you would like to see the hammer that stopped his babbling old tongue now, didn't you? He rose a little unsteadily from his chair, and seemed to drag his long limbs with an effort across the room to a cabinet at the farther end. Opening a drawer in this cabinet, he produced, from amidst some specimens of strata and fossils, a large-sized geological hammer. He brandished it for a moment over his head, then paused with his finger on his lip. "'Hush,' he said. "'We shall have the fools creeping in to peep at us if we don't take care.' And to Loveday's horror, he suddenly made for the door, turned the key in the lock, withdrew it, and put it in his pocket. She looked at the clock. The hands pointed to half-past seven. Had Griffiths received her note at the proper time? And were the men now in the grounds? She could only pray that they were. The light is too strong for my eyes, she said, and rising from her chair, she lifted the green-shaded lamp and placed it on a table that stood at the window. No, no, that won't do, said Mr. Craven. That would show everyone outside what we're doing in here. He crossed to the window as he spoke and removed the lamp thence to the mantelpiece. Loveday could only hope that in the few seconds it had remained in the window it had caught the eye of the outside watchers. The old man beckoned to Loveday to come near and examine his deadly weapon. Give it a good swing round, he said, suiting the action to the word, and down it comes with a splendid crash and he brought the hammer round within an inch of Loveday's forehand. She started back. Aha! He laughed harshly and unnaturally, with the light of madness dancing in his eyes now. Did I frighten you? I wonder what sort of sound you would make if I were to give you a little tap just there. Here he lightly touched her forehead with the hammer. Elemental, of course, it would be. And... Loveday steadied her nerves with difficulty. Locked in with this lunatic, her only chance lay in gaining time for the detectives to reach the house and enter through the window. Wait a minute, she said, striving to divert his attention. You have not yet told me what sort of an elemental sound old Sandy made when he fell. If you'll give me pen and ink, I'll write down a full account of it all and you can incorporate it afterwards in your treatise. For a moment a look of real pleasure flitted across the old man's face. Then it faded. The brute fell back dead without a sound, he answered. It was all for nothing, that night's work. Yet not altogether for nothing. Now I don't mind owning I would do it all over again to get the wild thrill of joy at my heart that I had when I looked down into that old man's dead face and felt myself free at last. Free at last! His voice rang out excitedly. Once more he brought his hammer round with an ugly swing. For a moment I was a young man again. I leapt into his room. The moon was shining full in through the window. I thought of my old college days and the fun we used to have at Pembroke. Topsy-turvy, I turned everything. He broke off abruptly and drew a step nearer to Loveday. The pity of it all was, he said, suddenly dropping from his high, excited tone to a low, pathetic one, that he fell without a sound of any sort. Here he drew another step nearer. 
I wonder, he said, then broke off again and came close to Loveday's side. It has only this moment occurred to me, he said, now with his lips close to Loveday's ear, that a woman in her death agony would be much more likely to give utterance to an elemental sound than a man. He raised his hammer, and Loveday fled to the window and was lifted from the outside by three pairs of strong arms. I thought I was conducting my very last case. I never had such a narrow escape before, said Loveday, as she stood talking with Mr. Griffiths on the Grenfell platform, awaiting the train to carry her back to London. It seems strange that no one before suspected the old gentleman's sanity. I suppose, however, people were so used to his eccentricities that they did not notice how they had deepened into positive lunacy. His cunning evidently stood him in good stead at the inquest. It is possible, said Griffiths thoughtfully, that he did not absolutely cross the very slender line that divided eccentricity from madness until after the murder. The excitement consequent upon the discovery of the crime may just have pushed him over the border. Now, Miss Brooke, we have exactly ten minutes before your train comes in. I should feel greatly obliged to you if you would explain one or two things that have a professional interest for me. With pleasure, said Loveday. Put your questions in categorical order, and I will answer them. Well, then, in the first place, what suggested to your mind the old man's guilt? The relations that subsisted between him and Sandy seemed to me to savour too much of fear on the one side and power on the other. Also, the income paid to Sandy during Mr. Craven's absence in Natal bore to my mind an unpleasant resemblance to hush money. Poor wretched being! And I hear that, after all, the woman he married in his wild young days died soon afterwards of drink. I have no doubt, however, that Sandy sedulously kept up the fiction of her existence, even after his master's second marriage. Now for another question. How was it you knew that Miss Craven had taken her brother's place in the sick-room? On the evening of my arrival, I discovered a rather long lock of fair hair in the unswept fireplace of my room, which, as it happened, was usually occupied by Miss Craven. It at once occurred to me that the young lady had been cutting off her hair and that there must be some powerful motive to induce such a sacrifice. The suspicious circumstances attending her brother's illness soon supplied me with such a motive. Ah, that typhoid fever business was very cleverly done. Not a servant in the house, I verily believe, but who thought Master Harry was upstairs ill in bed— and Miss Craven away at her friends in Newcastle. <laughs> the young fellow must have got a clear start off within an hour of the murder. His sister, sent away the next day to Newcastle, dismissed her maid there, I hear, on the plea of no accommodation at her friend's house, sent the girl to her own home for a holiday, and herself returned to Troit's Hill in the middle of the night, having walked the five miles from Grenfell. No doubt her mother admitted her through one of those easily opened front windows, cut her hair, and put her to bed to personate her brother without delay. With Miss Craven's strong likeness to Master Harry, and in a darkened room, it is easy to understand that the eyes of a doctor, personally unacquainted with the family, might easily be deceived. Now, Miss Brooke, you must admit that, with all this elaborate chicanery and double-dealing going on, it was only natural that my suspicions should set in strongly in that quarter. I read it all in another light, you see, said Loveday. It seemed to me that the mother, knowing her son's evil proclivities, believed in his guilt, in spite, possibly, of his assertions of innocence. The son, most likely on his way back to the house after pledging the family plate, had met old Mr. Craven with the hammer in his hand, Seeing, no doubt, how impossible it would be for him to clear himself without incriminating his father, he preferred flight to Natal to giving evidence at the inquest. "'Now, about his alias,' said Mr. Griffiths briskly, 
for the train was at that moment steaming into the station. How did you know that Harold Cousins was identical with Harry Craven, and had sailed in the Bonnie Dundee? Oh, that was easy enough, said Loveday, as she stepped into the train. A newspaper, sent down to Mr. Craven by his wife, was folded so as to direct his attention to the shipping list. In it, I saw that the Bonnie Dundee had sailed two days previously for Natal. Now it was only natural to connect Natal with Mrs. Craven, who had passed the greater part of her life there, and it was easy to understand her wish to get her scapegrace son among her early friends. The alias under which he sailed came readily enough to light. I found it scribbled all over one of Mr. Craven's writing pads in his study. Evidently it had been drummed into his ears by his wife as his son's alias, and the old gentleman had taken this method of fixing it in his memory. We'll hope that the young fellow, under his new name, will make a new reputation for himself. At any rate, he'll have a better chance of doing so with the ocean between him and his evil companions. Now it's good-bye, I think. No, said Mr. Griffiths. It's au revoir, for you'll have to come back again for the assizes, and give the evidence that will shut old Mr. Craven in an asylum for the rest of his life. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder at Troitz Hill by Catherine Louisa Perkins. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter for as little as $5 a month. The supporter program is a study in over-delivery. Give it a try and see how you like it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music